Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Pardes North America in partnership with the Porn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem, and welcome back to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Today, we are going to begin Sefer Shemuel, and we are quickly introduced to the protagonists, the family of Elkanah. Elkanah hails from Mount Ephraim, and he has two wives, Penina and Hannah. Penina has children, while Hannah has none. Although Elkanah is reported to come from a town called Ramataim Tsofim, geographically in the tribal territory of Ephraim, according to the book of Chronicles 1, chapter 6, he actually is a Levite, a direct descendant of Korach many generations earlier. If so, this sets up an incredible study in contrasts. The book of Judges, which is the backdrop for our book, ended with a series of harrowing tales. The most horrific one is the story of the concubine at Giv'ah, which concludes the book of Judges. And in that book, there was a Levite, the husband of the concubine, who figured prominently. That story was a story of violence and rape. It was a story of dismemberment and civil war. And the Levites acted in that story very, very negatively. In effect, Elkanah being introduced in Sefer Shemuel as a righteous man, as a pious person, serves as the counterpoint to that Levite at the end of the book of Judges and perhaps already indicates to the reader that our book is headed in a more positive direction, but not before certain challenges are overcome. Elkanah has two wives. Peninnah has children. Hannah has none. Elkanah loves Hannah more. It is a perfect recipe for strife and for tension. And that strife and tension is not long in coming. Of course, we have other examples in the Tanakh of two wives married to one husband. None of them turn out particularly well, whether it is Avraham with Sarah and Hagar, whether it is Yaakov with Leah and Rachel. These kinds of families are recipes for strife and for contention. Every year, the story is the same. Elkanah takes his family to Shiloh on a pilgrimage. Shiloh is the location of the national shrine. And after sacrifices are presented, he will offer his wives portions. Penina and her children will receive a portion and Chana will receive more. And this makes Penina very, very angry. And she spends the rest of her time attempting to bring Chana to tears. And so the pilgrimage unfolds every single year. This time, however, the story is slightly different. 
Verse 9 in chapter 1 reports that after Hana had risen from the meal, she went to pray. The officiating priest was none other than Eli HaKohen, who sat upon his chair next to the doorpost of the house of God, and she was bitter in spirit. She prayed to God, and she cried bitterly, and she pronounced a vow. And in that vow, she stated, God, if you will only give me a child, then I will dedicate that child to your service. He will come to Shiloh and he will serve you in this house until the end of his days. And of course, the irony is poignant. What Chana wants more than anything is to have a child. But when she secures that child, she says, I am prepared to loan that child, so to speak, to the service of God, to give him up so that he will be devoted to God's service. Chana says, Hashem tzivakot im ra'o tir'eh ba'oni amatecha, God of hosts, if you will only see the affliction of your maidservant, if you will remember me and not forget your maidservant, if you will give your maidservant a male child, then I will dedicate that child to you. The rabbis comment very perceptively, this is the first time that a human being in the Hebrew Bible has referred to God as the God of hosts, Hashem Tzivakot. Hosts here meaning the heavenly array, the planets, the stars, the galaxies. Rashi quotes a poignant Midrash. The Midrash says, Ribono Shelolam, master of the universe, from all of the hosts that you have created in your world, is it difficult in your eyes to grant me one small child? And of course, this vow, like other vows in the Hebrew Bible, is undertaken in a moment of crisis. Jacob will also utter a vow in a moment of crisis in Genesis 28 when he flees from the murderous wrath of his brother Esav. So a neder or a vow in the Hebrew Bible tends to be associated with reacting to a crisis moment. Eli, the officiating priest, sees that Hannah's lips are moving but her voice cannot be heard. Her tears are flowing, and Eli mistakes her for being drunk. Turning to her with very little empathy and very little understanding of her plight, he says the following, Ad matai tish takarin, for how long will you be drunk? Hasiri et yeneich me alaych. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Actually, according to Vayikra chapter 10, drunkenness in the precincts of God's house is a heinous crime punishable by death. And here is Eli quick to convict Chana of this crime without even bothering to find out who she is. The accusation is sharp and pointed. 
and Hannah responds with deference. I am not drunk, says Hannah. I am a woman in a difficult situation and I am pouring out my soul before God. Do not think for a moment that I am but Bilial, a woman of base intent or base actions. Actually, I cry out to God because of my difficulty. This moment of misunderstanding actually highlights something incredibly wrong with the divine service at Shiloh. Here is a woman who approaches God in utter sincerity. She pours out her heart. She cries. She utters a vow. And the officiating high priest mistakes that for drunkenness. Rashi generously comments, it must be the case that the custom was not to pray silently at Shiloh. And so Eli did not know what to make of Hannah's prayer. There she was moving her lips. There she was crying, but no words could be heard. Rashi's actually alerting us to something profound. Shiloh was the site of the Mishkan of the tabernacle, the house of God, a place of pomp and of circumstance and of ceremony, but apparently a place devoid of sincerity. A woman who prayed silently was mistaken for a drunkard. Or to put it differently, there is a lesson which this particular moment offers us, which is when it comes to prayer, sincerity is much more important than volume. God can hear a prayer that is a silent prayer if it is sincere. And that's all that matters. So the pomp and the circumstance and the ceremony of Shiloh amount to nothing if there's no sincerity to back it up. And so Hannah explains, I was not drunk. I cried out to God because of my trouble. And Eli blesses her that her prayer should be heard. And sure enough, after that prayer, her bad mood was relieved. She was able to face the challenges, including the challenge of her rival, Penina, and to go home with her head held high. A short time later, she conceived, and she gave birth to a child, and she called that child Shimuel, Kime Hashem She'iltiv, because I requested, I asked for this child from God. She remains home with that child for a couple of years until he is weaned. And then that child is presented at Shiloh with a special dedicatory sacrifice consisting of three cows and an efa, a flower, and a wineskin full of wine. And she presents that, and the child is given over to the tutelage of Eli, the priest. 
Hana says, I am the woman who uttered that prayer, Eli. Here is the answer to my prayers, and I am dedicating this child to God for his entire life. And so it was. Shemuel would remain dedicated to the service of God for the remainder of his life. The rabbis say that Shemuel did not have a fantastically long life. He only lived to the age of 52, but all of those years were dedicated to one thing only. In effect, the answer to Hannah's prayers that Shemuel should represent what it is to be truly devoted, what it is to serve God with purity, what it is to care about righteousness and justice. And that came directly from the source, which is the prayer that Hannah uttered and the values that she ascribed to. Shemuel was the concretization of those values and of that prayer. And after Shemuel is poignantly given up, as it were, to Eli and the service of God, Chana now utters a prayer of gratitude, almost unparalleled in the Hebrew Bible for its eloquence at the beginning of chapter 2. And Chana said, Alatzli bi Bashem. Ramakarni Bashem, my heart exalts in the Lord. I have triumphed through the Lord. I am able to respond to my enemies. I rejoice in your deliverance. Hannah indicates that her prayer is intensely personal. It is a response to the difficulties that she suffered and the pain inflicted by Penina, her rival. Talk no more with lofty pride. Let no arrogance cross your lips, she says in response to Penina. For God is an all-knowing God. By him, actions are measured. And then she offers us a series of parallels. By the way, biblical poetry can always be recognized by the parallelisms by which it is structured. That is to say... We state an idea, and then we state the idea again in a parallel phrase. Sometimes it is an amplification. Sometimes it is a repetition. Sometimes it is a contrast, but it always follows parallelism as its structure. The bows of the mighty are broken. The faltering are girded with strength. Men that were satiated with food must hire themselves out for bread. But the ones that are hungry are hungry no more. The barren woman bears seven children, but the mother of many is forlorn. Hannah basically tells us, if you want to see divine intervention in the world, it will take the course of a sudden change in fortune. The rich can become poor, and the poor can become rich. The weak can become strong, and the strong can become weak. The barren can have children. The mother of many can be saddened. Hashem meimit u'mechayeh morid she'ol vaya'al. God causes death and gives life. 
he casts down into the grave and he raises up. The ultimate statement of God's involvement in the world. She concludes with a verse which ultimately will be incorporated into the Hallel prayer in the book of Psalms. Mekim me'afar dal, this is chapter 2, verse number 8. God raises up the poor from the dust and from the dung heap, he raises up he that lacks. Lehoshivim nidivim, to seat them with the nobles and to offer them a throne of glory. That verse, Mekim me'afar dal me'ashpot yarim evyon, will ultimately make its way to Sefer Tehillim in the Hallel prayer, as I said, in chapter 113 of the book of Psalms. It's almost verbatim. And this, of course, highlights a very important idea when we study Tanakh, which is to appreciate that it is cross-referential and self-referential, which is to say, the author of Psalms 113 clearly had in his mind Hannah's prayer in the first book of Shemuel. And Hannah's prayer was the template for that later chapter with a similar sentiment, namely that God's involvement in the world is manifest through his intervention and through a change of fortune for the individual, as Hannah puts it, to make it extremely personal for her, man will not prevail by his strength, but only by God's involvement and God's intervention. And therefore, Penina, although she was the mother of children who used that fact to abuse Hannah, and to anger her and upset her, in the end, as it were, Hannah was able to regain her place. Hannah concludes her prayer. God, those that war against you will be broken. He will thunder against them in the heavens. God will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king and triumph to his anointed one. Of course, at this point in the story, there is no king and there is no anointed one, but Hannah is already anticipating what the future holds, especially for her son Shemuel, who will shortly emerge as the one to appoint the first kings in Israel. Some of the commentaries say the fact that Hannah speaks about the weak becoming strong and the strong becoming weak, the oppressors becoming overcome and the oppressed regaining their place is not just her personal story of anguish at the hands of Penina, but also the national story of the people of Israel who are oppressed by the Philistines and overwhelmed. And effectively, Hannah says, the day will come when a king will arise who will deliver us from their clutches. Because that is, after all, 
the divine intervention that we are praying for, she says, the change of fortune that we hope for and anticipate. Put differently, Hannah's prayer is not only personal and relating to her, but also national and relating to the people of Israel. And as it were, Hannah's triumph in our chapter, in her mind at least, anticipates a future triumph when a king of justice and righteousness arises who can save the vulnerable from the hands of their oppressors. Next time we will continue with our studies and have a look at the remainder of chapter two of Sefer Shemuel. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.